listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. It's good to be back. It's a cliche, but every time I leave Australia and you come back, you're like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like, it's really good particularly when you've just emerged from a shutdown overseas where your plane is delayed because air traffic controllers are on half staff. And you're like, how is this happening? Um, I'm just going to pray as this plane lands that there's enough staff in the control tower for me to land uh, in this country. I'm excited about what we're talking about today. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Exodus. Um, So if you want to open Exodus uh, chapter 3, it's going to be page 40. Uh, but just before we do that, um, just wanted to sort of frame this um, and really set out, I think, explain a process that God does in our lives and in the world and in our church, um, which I really think is behind what God's been doing so much of recently for us. And when you think about how we think about our lives or the development of even how God's been working through our church, we tend to think of this progression where Things are just going forward, and how it is is how it always could have been. Yesterday was Australia Day, um, and it's really interesting. We just assume that Australia Day would have always happened. Really fascinating that Australia Day was just one possibility out of many. Um, In the mid-19th century, it was no guarantee that we would have one country called Australia. Basically, Victoria and New South Wales were very, very different places and saw themselves as different cultures. Uh, Sydney was the more established place. New South Wales had been going longer. That's where the first sort of colony that sort of came to Australia there in in Tasmania. So it saw themselves as being around for ages. Victoria sort of just kicked off in this really strange way. But what really made Victoria was actually the gold rush uh, when gold was discovered. And all of a sudden, all these people came to Victoria from America, Britain, Europe, Italy, China, all come to Victoria, and Melbourne got rich really quickly. Melbourne was the second biggest city in the entire British Empire. People would come from Europe and be stunned at how technologically advanced and and how the architecture in Melbourne. It was like the Dubai of the 19th century. And what's really interesting is people talked about how Melbourne people and Victorian people were culturally different to everyone else in Australia. They actually called Melbourne in the 19th century the Yankee capital. What they meant by that were like Melburnians, they're more like Americans. They're like entrepreneurs, they've got this can-do spirit. They're all about money and they're all about entrepreneurship and all this sort of stuff. And so Melbourne didn't need the rest of Australia. Like, Victoria had its own navy. When you crossed the border on the Murray, you had to go through customs. And Victorians, like, had this thing. It was like, build a wall. Like, we don't want anyone else coming in. Like, we're going to put tariffs on your New South Welshman's stuff. Like, South Australians, we're going to put a board. Like, don't come in here. We're just rocking. Forget about it. Sydney didn't really want to be part of Victoria either. They had their own navy as well and their own army. And it was this really weird thing. In the 19th century... Melbourne had more to do with Dunedin in New Zealand and saw itself more culturally connected to what was happening in New Zealand. So there's all these possibilities. One was that all the colonies just stayed separate. 
The second possibility they talked about was this like EU free trade association where all the colonies would have been separate countries, including New Zealand, but everyone could trade with each other. That could have been a possibility. Another even more bizarre possibility was that there would have been two or three countries. One configuration, we had West Australia as a country, Queensland and New South Wales as another country, and then Victoria, Tasmania, and New Zealand as another country. I sort of like that. That would be quite cool. There's sort of like the South versus the North. Your grandfathers could have fought in the great New South Wales versus Victoria War. That could have been a possibility. But what happened was, in 1891, there was a significant recession and almost depression globally, and it hit Victoria really hard. And it hit New South Wales really hard. So when they voted in the first referendum whether we should all be one country, it was really close. Victoria, because it had been economically hit and realised that needed the rest of Australia, actually decided to vote for federation. Sydney voted against federation. They didn't want to be part of the rest of Australia. Tells you something. <laughs> and even in the second referendum, it was really close. Like, New South Wales didn't want to be part of it. So we just assumed that Australia Day would have happened. It might not have. There could have been multiple different countries that emerged at the beginning of the 20th century down under. And it's a little bit like that with our lives. We look back at these moments, these fateful decisions, these choices that we make. And often when we're sitting at this point, we can just assume our lives would always end up like this. And one of the beliefs of Scripture is that God is at work shaping our lives. It's a really interesting thing because there's a dynamic between God's sovereignty. What that means is that God is controlling our lives, but then also that he gives us free will. So God is in the business, and really this is what this sermon is about, of dispensing goodness in our lives. God is good. God is the ultimate good in the universe. And so how does God dispense his goodness in our lives. That's what I want to talk about. It's a really cool concept, and so many of us go through life not even contemplating how God works with us. To do this, let's turn again to Exodus 3, which you should have in front of you. And we're going to read the story of how God interacts, and in a sense interrupts, a guy who at this stage would call himself an Egyptian. He is born Hebrew but is given up, put in a little raft on the river. He's picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, and we encounter him a little bit later in the story. His name is Moses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, sorry, Moses said that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here am I. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezes... I left my proper Bible in San Francisco. That sounds like an album title, but anyway. <laughs> I have to leave this small line. Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go now, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you. That is, I who have sent you, when you brought the people out of Egypt, you will, be worship, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses is going through his life. He sees it like so much of us see it, that it's just this line. He's just going forward, experiencing every day as he experiences. Stuff happens, but it's just stuff. And then all of a sudden, there is this moment he is doing something seemingly mundane. When you look at this, it's just something that's happening out in the bush. A man is doing his job, he's tending sheep, and he sees a bush on fire, and he goes over to it, and this is when it stops getting normal. In the midst of it, it calls out his name, and he has this encounter with God. Now, what's really interesting, and you have to be aware of the different little symbols when we read the biblical story, that while this seems normal and mundane, there's some giveaways. He is going to Horeb, the mountain of God. In the Bible, mountains point to holy places or temples. He sees this bush burning, which points to back to the tree of life in Genesis, and also points forward to the candelabra, known as the menorah, in the temple, which is shaped like a tree on fire. God says to him, take off your shoes, you're in a holy place. And what's really, really strange is Moses is having this experience which has echoes of something to come. This is a preparation moment. You have preparation moments. You've had preparation moments and you probably haven't recognized them. We're trained just to look at life as a line. Are we progressing? Are we advancing? Are we stagnating? Are we retreating? It's how we look at ourselves. It's how we look at our culture. Now, the Bible sees things as moving forward, but there's this really different process that God takes us on. And so, we tend to look at how God will dispense His goodness in our life in a secondary way. And I want to point us back to the primary way. The primary way that God dispenses His goodness in our lives is through eternal life, His gospel coming and saving us through Jesus' life-giving death on the cross. And then we have this invitation into transformation into Christ-likeness, becoming more like Christ, more like God, and then this kingdom life. All of this stuff is the primary goodness that God wants to dispense into your life. Now, the scriptures talk about secondary 
blessings. This could be a good job, a house, the enjoyment of earthly things, relationships, a spouse. But these things are secondary. Now, humans miss what God is doing in their lives is humans sabotage God's attempt to dispense goodness in our lives by seeking secondary blessings in our own strength. We make the secondary blessings, which can be from God, but we ignore the primary blessings that this is about God, and we seek that which we can't take with us. How do you know something is secondary blessing? You cannot take it with you when you die. And humans will sabotage and resist what God is doing because we want to get the stuff in our own strength. Now, what's really interesting is if you go back in the story, Moses has tried to do this. Moses doesn't begin the story as a sheep herder. He begins the story as someone in the Egyptian royal household. And one day he sees his people being oppressed by an Egyptian slave, slave owner, and it says he looks left and right and goes and kills this guy, buries the body in the sand. Now, what's really interesting is he's actually doing what God's called him to do, but he's doing it in human strength. He's not focusing on the spiritual and the eternal and how God wants to deliver his people. He's actually doing that in a human way, trying to advance it in his own strength. So, in order to not make that mistake, because when we do that, we bring frustration and we bring a lack of growth into our lives. We want to align ourselves with a really cool way that God actually works in us and wants to do good things. So, we need to get an understanding of how God does this. So, the story of Moses illustrates this. The first thing is, there is this invitation that comes to Moses. But what's really interesting is the invitation is also a bit of an interruption. What can first seem like an interruption to your plans to advance things in your own strength is an invitation. Moses is doing his thing, tending the sheep, and he's interrupted by God. It's a burning bush. He has to see it. Why does this bush not burn up? It's really interesting that it's God, but also says that he first goes because it's a strange sight. The first reaction of Moses is not like, there's God. It's like, what the heck is going on over there? It's like a YouTube clip that he just has to see. He's walking over there to check it out. Like, this is just human curiosity. But then he has this encounter with God. You and I have had encounters with God that come first as interruptions to our human-made plans. God will sometimes allow us to be frustrated in our endeavors to dispense goodness upon ourselves to get the secondary before the primary blessings. And we need to re-look at what God is doing and actually see it as an invitation. That job that you may have wanted and you wanted to get it and you don't, and it seems like all your plans have fallen astray, there's actually possibly an invitation in there. Now, these invitations and interruptions tend to come in two types of seasons. 
There are people here at Red, and you have been in seasons of discomfort. You have been in seasons where you actually can't ignore God's interruption anymore. Where God has come and you have seen your life, in a sense, fall apart. We have people here at Red who have ended up in faith because everything's fallen apart. Jobs, relationships, health, mental health. And we've hit rock bottom. And realize that at rock bottom, the mythology of the world is quickly clear. And when the mythology of the world is shown in a season of discomfort, you realize that you've got nowhere to turn to but God. So God comes with an invitation in that moment to pluck you out of the miry clay, to put you on your feet again. Sometimes, though, God will, and this is actually harder, it's easier to turn to God in a season of discomfort, but some of us will have invitations in seasons of comfort. Some of the most spiritually dangerous times are actually in seasons of success. Because we can start to believe the lie that we're doing this in our own strength. Now, one of the ways that God will interrupt you is through reality. God uses discipleship of reality to shape us. So, so many of these things that when we look at them through the lens of the world, it's just a straight line forward, when they look through this paradigm, we see them as invitations. I just want to talk about one. So many people, increasingly we discover in pastoral ministry, when you have your first child, particularly in a time where we've been shaped in individualism, where we've been shaped, where people are delaying adolescence into adolescence, and we're having children later, and you've been shaped by being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it, and then all of a sudden, you have this child, and it's like your will is ripped out, put in a pram, it can like go to the toilet and scream. That's all it can do. And all your life-made plans now revolve around this pooing, screaming thing. And this all of a sudden is an encounter with reality. And in that, there's an interruption, but there's also an invitation. There's an invitation into hiddenness. There's an invitation into accepting the mythology that you're actually not in control. I remember hitting that, driving between Chadston and my home, when we could not get our daughter Grace to sleep, and we're spending every Friday night, and maybe even Thursday night, just walking in circles around Chadston, just trying to get our daughter to sleep. And my mythology of my own control over life, I remember driving in the car, and we listened to classical music for babies, and I just thought any pretense I had that I was some in-control person, and maybe even a semblance of cool, was destroyed at that moment. It's a Friday night, I'm not out socializing, I'm not doing what I want to do, I'm listening to classical music for babies in a station wagon. <laughs> God will bring moments of interruption when we don't get what we want. Now, he doesn't always cause them. A mental health crisis may not be something that God has actually caused, but in that, with God and his presence, there actually can be an invitation. So when that invitation comes... We're then forced to make a decision. We can ignore it and just double down on doing it in my own strength. We can go into paralysis and collapse, which is the opposite, and just move into passiveness and just giving up. We can become someone who then 
get the people around you to do it all for you. However, the cool process that God then invites us into, where he dispenses his goodness, begins with stopping, recognizing the interruption, and going in a different direction. And it may not feel like an advance forward always, but it begins, the key to God dispensing his goodness begins first with submission. Submission. That's the decision to submit to God. And often we're like, I'm cool with submitting to God, but also his process of how he works in our lives. That sometimes God's not going to give you what you want when you want it for your own sake. God's sometimes going to let you be out of control because he wants to do a better thing in you than you can imagine for yourself. So the first step is, notice in my little visual, it's like you're going down. You can actually feel at this point, like, I'm not advancing. Something's happening here. I'm submitted. Everyone else is going forward, and I'm stuck here, and I may even sort of be sinking a little bit here. That's the sense memory that this process sometimes has, or sense experience. This way you give up and give in to God. Your way, not my way. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. No human on earth, no matter their talent, fortitude, will, strength, can do this. The second thing that happens then is after submitting to God, the next key is obedience. The world fell apart when Adam and Eve weren't obedient to God's command on their lives. We put the world and our lives back together when through Jesus' death we can be obedient because Jesus was obedient to the cross. And so the key then is obedience. His word over the world and your will. So what that means is judging your life, not by what the world is saying, not judging your faith by the standards of the world, which is normally what that means in the biblical sense. It's not like planet Earth. What that means is all of the structures of the world, opinions, ideas, knowledge that opposes God's will. There's stuff in the planet Earth which is aligned with God's will. But this means normally in our context, what everyone around you who's not following God is saying, sometimes even your well-wishing Christian friends who are operating not out of a sense of what the gospel is saying, but actually out of what a cultural Christianity or a Christianized version of the culture is saying. And what that means to is, God, I'm going to do that even though my will doesn't want to do that. So often at this point, people have stories. I, God just called me to fast. God called me to get up half an hour early. God called me to give that money to the poor. God called me to actually cut that behavior out of my life. God called me to actually now get serious about my faith. God actually called us in our relationship to actually pray. God called me to accept this situation and to allow his will to dominate my will. Obedience is the second key. And the reason we go through submission and obedience, doing his will, is because he wants to have communion. That's the third key. This is about communion. This is about ripping out the power cords of your energy that you're trying to achieve your life and pulling that power cord out of your back and replugging back into the inexhaustible, undescribable power of God, where that is the power battery that animates your life. 
And so this is ultimately about communion. This is God saying, seriously, just stop doing your own strength. You're messing this up. You can't do it. You're hurting yourself. I'm here. I'm an inexhaustible resource. Moses, who attempts to free the Israelites in his own strength, just ends up killing some bloke and burying the body in some sordid little murder. And God's like, despite that, plug yourself into what? The bush that never burns up. Speaking of the power of God is inexhaustible. Yahweh. The God who's just simply known, like I am. I'm not the God of the Babylonians or the God of the Egyptians. Who are you? I just am. Because I am the central organizing principle of the entire universe. That is the power source that God invites us into. So in order to be part of that, worship and praising God then becomes central to who we are. Not just a thing we do for a couple of songs before Sunday sermon, but actually a way of life where life is rightly ordered and we constantly push back glory to God. Submission, obedience, worship. And what you notice is where at first you felt like, I'm not advancing in this process, I'm just staying still, like, man, I'm spending this time worshiping God, I'm trying to do His will, I'm submitting to Him, everything else is moving forward, and I seem to just be stuck in this holding pattern, and then all of a sudden, one day, something happens, and you realize that what's been going on is He's deepening you. He doesn't need more advances rushing forward in their own skill, ruining the world, doing it by their own power, He needs deep people. People who are deepened by him. And so this process, which looks different to the world, and often will happen in hiddenness, by the way. The world, particularly the moment outage of social media, is all about advancing and being seen doing it. God changes you in the hidden places. That's just going to become more and more powerful the more broadcasty we get. So this deepening is happening and you're beginning to change, and God is dispensing goodness in you. And you think like, hang on, I'm saying no to that, and I'm praying. And what actually is happening in the spiritual realm is God is dispensing goodness into you, and you don't feel it because you feel it in a different way than eating an ice cream or the pleasure-filled ways that we've been taught to experience what is the good. But God is dispensing His goodness in you. And then we flip into this new reality where what defines us is not getting ahead or proving ourselves, but actually what defines us is this inward growth. And this is key. God's goodness is primarily dispensed in you by you growing in your spiritual life. Let me say that again. God's goodness is primarily dispensed in you by growing into his likeness. You become a mini Jesus. You become an example of the presence of God in the world. And what's really interesting at this point is that God's imagination, you begin to realize, is bigger than your identity. Okay, what do I mean by that? Now Moses, what's really interesting, when he first kills the Egyptian and he has to escape Egypt because Pharaoh's after him, and he arrives in this backward part, far away, and he encounters this family, Zipporah and Jethro, and they describe him not as the Hebrew saviour of his people. They don't even describe him as a Hebrew. They describe him as an Egyptian. 
Now, it's really interesting. At this point, what is, what is Moses? He would describe himself as an Egyptian. He would describe himself as a member of the Egyptian royal household. You notice that he's not being whipped by the overseer. He's just watching because he's got the privilege and power to actually just watch. He's not part of this thing. He's not submitted to the oppression that the other Jewish people are being oppressed. He's actually part of this royal family. He's like a rich Saudi, right? And so that's how he saw himself. That's how people described him. Now, at this point, what often comes against God's growing us and dispensing his goodness on us is that we have these barriers which we call our identity. And it's a human-given identity. I'm not talking Christ-given identity. I'm not talking you create in the image of God. I'm not talking that you're remade as white, as, 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 as cloth, because Jesus has died for us. I'm talking these limiting concepts that we have around ourselves, which is, I'm not like that. Christians currently are obsessed, and I have to put my hand up and say, I have contributed to this in the past, but Christians are currently obsessed with personality tests. What's your Myers-Briggs? I'm an Enneagram, two, four, seven, eight. You did that because you're a one. All these ways that we describe. Now, now, personality tests are only about 100 years old. They're very new and very Western. And we can then see ourselves as I'm that kind of person. And when we do that, we can limit ourselves. And there's a little bit which can be helpful in them where you sort of understand yourself. But on the, on, I think on the whole, we can limit ourselves and what God wants to do in us because I'm that kind of person. My friend, John Tyson, who does a fantastic church, was telling me about how God encountered his life. He gets this incredible encounter with God as a butcher in South Australia. He goes to a church service. It's, I think it was like a midweek thing of young adults. And... He notices down the front people contending and praying, and he's up the back. Now, he said in his mind, he's the kind of guy which doesn't go down the front. Yeah, he's going to follow this Jesus thing, but he's the kind of guy who's a bit more cerebral, up the back, whatever. And God said to him, no, I'm calling you to be a down the front person. I'm not calling you to be distant. I'm actually calling you to be down here. And each of us will be confronted with those moments where we have God wanted to grow us, but I'm this kind of person. And each of you have got them. Some of you that you are negative because people around you have said this. Some are self-constructed. Human identities are smashed by God's imagination. Could Moses, the Egyptian member of the royal household, imagine that God will use him as the deliverer of Israel? Literally, the guy goes to the top of Mount Sinai and encounters the full presence of God and gets the Torah law. When he was an Egyptian, murdering that bloke, he could not have imagined that. God's imagination for you is bigger than your small, constructed human identity. So at that point, we've got to give up and say, okay, I don't know what you're doing with God here, but I'm just going to get in the carriage behind your engine and I'm just going to follow this thing because you're growing inside of me. And actually putting down the labels that you've been described as because God's imagination is huge. He's creating you in Christ-likeness. So we go on this process and we go deeper and he begins to change us. And those limiting beliefs disappear because when you are invested in a human identity, you've actually got to defend it. I'm the smart one here, so I've got to prove that I'm smart. But that means if there's someone else around me who appears smarter than me, I can't celebrate their success. 
when you enter into like, God's just going to grow me, I don't even know what that's going to look like. God could develop your intelligence. God could develop your compassion. You could be someone who sees yourself as an introvert. Maybe God actually wants to develop your extroversion. Maybe you're just this raving extrovert and God actually wants to turn you into this quiet, contemplative prayer. Who knows? That's the brilliant, exciting thing being liberated from these self-defining things where you've got to constantly prove your identity. When your identity is in Christ, it's actually on Him. It's not about you. It's brilliantly liberating. What a relief. And then when God has been growing you and He's dispensing His goodness in you and you're filling up with His goodness, what happens then is it goes above the line. The line in which no one can see, where you've been on this thing and maybe your friends don't even know what's going on and you're talking to a couple of people and God's been taking you deep and then all of a sudden like a magnificent dolphin jumping above the water, you emerge, but you don't emerge like, okay, I'm here, I've been on a process with God, come talk to me. What you notice is it just dribbles out of you. You're filled with his goodness, you're filled with his transformation and I've seen this happen here. All of a sudden, I know, we were praying before the service and someone says something like, whoa, where did that come from? That was awesome. I've never heard that person pray like that. Hang on, that person did that for them? Whoa, where did that word come from? This is brilliant. And you can almost see the people are shocked. Like, I said something, that just resonated. What on earth is going on here? And what on earth is going on is, ministry is not striving. Ministry is more like a giant water balloon, right? It's like a water bomb. You know, you're filling that, 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 that water bomb on the, have you done this recently? You're filling that, that water bomb on the tab, and it's so tight that all you can do is just push it a little bit, and water comes spilling out. This is ministry as overflow. So you're actually so filled up with God's goodness, it just comes out of you. This is why it says, seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be given unto you. This is overflow, fruits of the Spirit. You don't go into, you know, colonial fruit vegetable company at Doncaster and say, you know, I want patience and goodness. You follow the kingdom, and that stuff just comes out of you. So this is the mode of faith that we need at this moment. This is the mode of faith that the church needs, where you're doing the things of the kingdom, not because you're trying really hard and a committee had a meeting. It's actually just flowing out of your encounter and transformation with God. And I really believe that some people here are actually in that process of under, you're under the waterline. You're the dolphin deep down in the water. No one can see it. You're saying no to stuff. You're dropping stuff behind. God's working on you. And it does not feel like you're being filled with his spirit. But his goodness is flowing into you. He's filling you up. Trust in what he's doing in you. He's remaking you, and it's the most beautiful, wonderful, liberating thing in the world. Now, if you look at Moses, and the very linear amongst you may go, is it just happened once? If you look at Moses, this keeps happening. You see at the burning bush, fire, when Moses gets the law at Mount Sinai, there's fire, there's an encounter with God, it's like a temple. When Moses creates the tabernacle, near the end of the book of Exodus, there's the smoke, there's the fire, there's the cloud, there's the presence. Each time, God is training him, and the guy who was an Egyptian like, like member of the royal family, all of a sudden, by the end, is this just empowered man of God. And that's what's happening to us in this room when we submit 
to God's process. This keeps going. This is God's way of preparing us in christ like us. This is not like a seven-week course you do, and then like, hi, I'm a mature Christian. God has us on this, and God has read on this as well. One of the things that people have said about red is, wow, if you come to red, you've got to get used to growing, because it's always growing. And I do not mean like numbers. I mean, there's a challenge where God continually invites us deeper. I came back this year, and I've been in the States, and honestly, I just spent my time on planes and sitting in reflection in the States like, God, you're asking me to change again, to go deeper. And it's wonderful. I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to stagnate. I don't want to rest on laurels. I don't want to do it my strength. I want a season where ministry just comes out of overflow. And we're at this moment where people have been able to do, well, this is where the skit begins. <laughs> we have this season where God has got us to this point where in the West, there's been churches like Red, and if you do a good biblical sermon, if you do some good worship, if you do some community, and you have good fonts, and like cool graphics, people are going to come. But we don't need more of that. We don't need people who are just going to come to that. And I come every four weeks, and yeah, it's good. Where are you going? I'm going to read at the moment. I go every four weeks. But they've got good fonts. We need people who are changing and growing. And God invites us into a new season to go deeper with him. God's been at work in your life. Some of you are under the water. Some of you are interruption phase. Some of you are just like, hang on, that's happening. Is that an interruption? Is that actually an invitation? Some of you are experiencing this for the first time because you're young. Some of you have been here before and maybe there's even some broken dreams because you felt like you tried to go under the water and this didn't happen. This can happen at 80. This can happen at 18. God is a God of growing us and transforming us. So let's stand. Band's going to come up. Holy Spirit's going to move. And one of the ways that God dispenses his goodness is through people praying for us. One of the ways that God dispenses his goodness is through people worshipping. One of the ways that God comes and works amongst us is through us standing together and committed to this process. So we're going to move now into a time of worship and ministry. Yeah, we worship but also we open our hearts to what God wants to do amongst us, that he's wanting to shape us. So the way that we're going to do that is the band's going to pray. First of all, there's an opportunity to take communion. When we commune with God, we sit and we dine with Jesus. We dine with God and we remind ourselves that that's how history ends, with a big feast where we sit and eat with God. So in doing that, that is God dispensing his goodness upon you. So invitation, if you've never been to Red before, how we do is we dip the cracker in the juice. You can grab some space around the table, sit and pray anywhere around here. But there'll also be people to pray for you on the sides. I just really encourage you to begin to just, as we enter into worship, just begin to think about your life. How has God been working in my life? Where am I in that stage? Am I invitation interruption? Am I being asked to submit, obey, worship? God, are you growing me within? God, do you want me now to just come above that waterline and just allow the overflow to happen? Let's allow the Holy Spirit to minister amongst us. So we ask the Holy Spirit to come now. We don't have to do this. This is a brilliant thing. No hype, no human activity. Just know that the Holy Spirit's walking 
and moving amongst us, speaking to our hearts. Actually, he's already been working in our hearts. It's just us coming to attention of it. So Holy Spirit, do your work now. Speak to us. Show us how you want us to grow into your image. Let's move into this time now.